The Chicago Reporter's interim editor and publisher, Glenn Reedus, has made a career of not shying away from asking the tough questions. My boss told me, I have to ask you, what is the mafia? And then his whole demeanor changed. And he said, I don't know what you're talking about. That mafia, what is that? And just then, this guy comes and stands in the door and he fills the door. Well, I guess the interview's over. For 50 years, the Chicago Reporter's been on a mission investigating issues of race, poverty, and income inequality in Chicago. But a few years ago, it seemed on the verge of folding. I'm Sheila Solomon with Rivet 360, and this is Chicago Media Talks, a show in which people in Chicago media talk about Chicago media. Glenn, what was going on in 1972 that triggered the idea for the reporter? Well, the the race situation in Chicago was just horrendous. And uh, John McDermott wanted to address that and the founder of the reporter. And he wanted, he felt that uh, the business community and major influencers were the people who could uh, make that change. And the the, uh, reporter started out as a monthly newsletter uh, focused uh, targeting those people. And it just morphed into something uh, more general. But as we know that from 72 till today, uh, the race situation really hasn't changed a lot in the city. So when you say the race issue was really bad, what what do you mean? And what is it about McDermott that made him decide he wanted to do something about it? As, as far as I know, Mr. McDermott was a um, just a very concerned citizen, and I guess today we'd call him an activist. And he's been described as an idea person. And there was a, a Black woman named Lillian Calhoun. She was the, the news brain, if, if you will. But in 72, Chicago was far more segregated than it is today. We didn't have um, a lot of clout, if you will, uh, politically or or even economically. It was starting because it was at the you know, the tail end of what was considered the civil rights movement at that time. Um, and the, the cops were horrendous and people really wanted to uh, see that, that violence stop. We had the schools were, you know, because they were all neighborhood schools, they were tremendously segregated because Chicago at that time was considered the most segregated uh, major city in the country. So what kind of changes have the reporters' investigations since that time led to here in Chicago? There are several, and we've done a lot in partnering like with the ACLU in terms of getting uh, less discrimination in housing. There's been uh, several uh, police-related changes that have come about because of the reporters' uh, investigative work and um, raised awareness about the level of poverty in Chicago and that it's not just a, uh, a black thing. So why is, um, why is the Chicago reporter still needed? Because the changes um, that started to address in 72 has not changed. It's changed incrementally, let me put it like that. Why was the reporter put on hiatus a, a couple of years ago, I believe, twenty around 2020? You know, honestly, 
uh, the reporter was going through some some changes personnel wise and I think direction wise. And it was deemed that, hey, let's just put the brakes on this for a while. So how's that affected readership? Surprisingly, not in a, a really big way, because then we were, you know, by being online, uh, that helped. And we were able to, if you will, retrieve some of those, uh, some of those people while the, the paper was dormant. And, you know, we're still working and, and trying to recover everybody and add some folks. Yeah, I'm using a, a lot of freelance writers and some uh, college students. College students. Yes, I was yeah. going to ask you about that. What kind of training are they able to get with COVID, perhaps keeping most of us out of our newsrooms now? Well, I don't, I don't attribute it much to COVID because even before COVID, a lot of news operations had seemingly switched from sending people into the street and to letting uh, reporters report by phone, which I think is horrible, but that's what they were doing. And because um, I'm old and I, uh, I want to, you're going to be lying to me. I want to see you do it. Uh, so I think I can tell. But anyhow, um, I, I don't think they've, they've been impacted. But the training is what they'd get uh, if they were able to, to get out into the streets. And I, and I think because uh, it's been a trend for such a long time, very few of them uh, even their professors, very few of them know the difference and know how much more effective reporting can be when you're face-to-face with people. Where are the story ideas coming from? Every place. Uh, a, lot of the, um, a lot of them come from the students themselves. They come from me. They come from the uh, associate editor, Ugo Balta. And there's, you know, there, there's plenty of stories every day you know, some people don't, you know, they, they just haven't been trained in school as to how to develop story ideas. How would you like to change that? So uh, I have sent, I have sent uh, reporters and students into the streets to, uh, to get their stories to, when I say into the streets, I mean, you know, going to maybe to someone's office or to a particular neighborhood to do that. And because I also taught journalism at Michigan State University for three years, one of the former students described me as rigorous. It, it seems that there um, a lot of them, not just students, but some of the uh, some, some reporters that we've had, they don't drill down deep enough in terms of how many, you know, asking the questions and I think that might have something to do with being young and want to be liked as a reporter versus uh, just get the story. What are some of the fundamentals of finding stories that students and, as you suggest, some of their professors don't seem to know? Um, Just look around. I mean, there's just there's a million stories every day, but don't just see something and, and don't think about what it is. Uh, long years ago, when I was uh, I was a business reporter and I just starting out, and the city editor um, came to me and he said, "You know, U.S. Met wants to get rid of pennies. He says, How many pennies you got in your pocket?" I don't know. I counted them. He says, "Well, 
Here's what I want you to do. Go to the bank, get two rolls of pennies, then go to these shopping centers. I want you, when nobody's looking, sprinkle some pennies around. And if people stop and pick them up, ask them why. If they see the penny and they ignore it, ask them why. So the story, and that, that was really funny because I remember old people, would, when I approached them, they say, oh, do you want it back? <laughs> but the story was the, the mint wants to stop the penny, but people are using the penny. So why stop it? Um, and some things might seem mundane, but you have to remember for everything that you might not like, there's somebody who likes it and everything you like, there's somebody who, who doesn't like it and try to, uh, try, try to stay or understand trends. Um, you remember that, I don't know, many years ago, McDonald's said it was going to uh, stop because of the, uh, the obesity crisis or whatever it was being called. They were going to stop supersizing. And they did for, what, two years and three years. And then they went right back to it. There's a story. Why, you know, why did they bring it back? What was the impact when, when they did? I'm, I'm thinking about things like currency exchanges. That's sort of unique to Chicago. Oh, really? How, in, yeah. how do you mean? They're not, they're not every place. A lot of states don't have them. So the, the story is what's happening in those currency exchanges on Friday evenings. Many, many people from um, Central America are lined up to send money back home. Let's dig into that. How is there a way to find out how much money is being spent? Talk, sent. Talk to the people in line uh, at the currency exchanges. Is this something you do every day? Is it? I mean, every week or every time you get paid? You know, can you tell us the average that you send? You know, we're not asking who you send it to or what they're doing with it, but this is you're in Chicago and this is what's happening. Um, those, you know, those kind of things that you just, you see so often, but you don't give second thoughts to. I think that that's, it would be helpful uh, for reporters to do that. If I could uh, give you another example, when I was teaching, and that's when uh, Katrina hit, and I was in, I was teaching in, in East Lansing. And some of the students said, well, you know, why didn't they just get in their cars and, and drive away? Well, East Lansing, next to Lansing, is you know they're, they're very, very vastly different. Uh, Lansing is a manufacturing town. East Lansing is you know, run by the university. So at that point, I stopped. I said, you know, throw away the syllabus. All we're going to do is focus on helping you understand why they didn't get in their cars and drive out, drive away. So we spent the rest of the semester. Uh, the students had to develop, and they were in teams, to develop a strategy to help people from Lansing get jobs, uh, help with transportation, and they had this, um, they had a, a jobs fair. And they, and the students did it all on their own. They um, arranged for childcare, they arranged for a hospital to sponsor it. And 
it was a, a real life experience for them and to a person. Everyone said they had a much better understanding of what poverty was like because I didn't have any poor students, if you will. And I think that those are the kinds of things that we need to do, even if we're talking about people who are, who are hired and they're starting out, give them a uh, give them a real feel for, for where they are. And I, I can my first job out of school was in Waterloo, Iowa. So that was that was quite the culture shock. But you know, I I wanted to be a reporter, so it didn't matter where I was or what I had to do. I was that's what I wanted to do is be a reporter. Are you from Chicago? Yep, born and raised on the west side, K Town. And so what drew you to journalism? I was um, 12, 13 years old, and I I don't know how I got in this program. I don't remember asking anybody to be in it, but um, I was in a, in a program called Summer Enrichment at St. Ignatius High School on the west side, and there were um, 23 Black students, 23 Hispanic students, and we had an hour and a half of uh, English an hour and a half of math and we had a field trip every day. So one day the field trip was to the Chicago Tribune. And when we got into the newsroom and remember this is days of uh, manual typewriters, everybody smoked um, and there's copy boys running back and forth. And really it was just, it was just the most exciting thing I had seen. And I broke away from the tour and I asked a couple of guys uh, who were standing there talking to one another, you know, what they did. They told me they were reporters. And so I asked them, you know, what reporters do. And one of them showed me his byline over a story. And he said, I wrote that. And he said, and tomorrow when the paper comes out, you know, look for that name and you'll see another story. Well, this was in what, 60 seven no it couldn't have been 67 66 maybe and black people did not get the tribune but i got seven sets and got the tribune and i read it in the living room and when my parents came home from work my dad had a fit because the tribune was in the house um but that that was it i decided that that's what i wanted to do i wanted to see my name in the newspaper and so I, uh, you know, when I got to high school, I did the regular stuff. I wrote for the, uh, we had a magazine. I wrote for the magazine. I wrote for the paper. Then uh, when I went to college, I think the first year I couldn't write. First year you can't write for the paper. And then sophomore year I was writing for the paper. And uh, the only, I think it was the only black person who was a journalism major approached me about starting a newspaper um, and it was called Black Realities, and it was funded by the, the Methodists. So it was for the community. It was for the community of Omaha, but not for the students where where we were going to school. And we did that for uh, a little over a year, and that was that was just a huge huge plus in my life. And I just I, I became more enamored 
with the business. And I can still remember my mother uh, during my senior year. Uh, there was there was a woman, I, I can't remember her name, but she wrote a, a career column for the uh, Tribune. And it came out every Sunday. And I remember talking to my mother one Sunday night. And she said, this was my senior year. And she said, well, whoever the lady was, she said, it's not a good year for journalism uh, graduates. I said, Mom, there's two jobs out there, one in China and one in New York. I'm getting one, probably the one in New York because I don't speak Chinese. But um, And then uh, I applied. I think I had set my limit at 10 resumes. And I sent out three. And I got one was from North Carolina, one from South Carolina. And they gave me that little five by eight, sorry, no nothing available with your skills. Then I got a four page letter from um, from the newspaper in Waterloo, Iowa. And I didn't know why they were telling me about the Waterloo Central football team winning the state championship 11 out of 13 years. So I took it to my advisor. I took the letter. He says, well, they want they want to interview you. And I said, where does it say that? He says, believe me. And so I called and um, made arrangements to go there. And I get to the I get to the newsroom. And now instead of manual typewriters, everybody's using IBM selectors, but they're still noisy, too. So I get and the receptionist says, you know, the managing editor's office is. At the end, you'll see you'll see his name on the window, and so I I have to walk through the entire newsroom, and I can hear fewer people typing the deeper I get into the newsroom. So when I got to his office and I looked, and everybody was looking at me, and a million people said, "Glenn, you shouldn't have said that," but I turned and I saw them looking at me, and I looked at him, and I said, "Do they always stop working when a black guy comes to see you?" And he got pretty red and rushed me in. And I, uh, and I went to work there. They wanted me to drop out of school to come to work. And I said, no. It said, <laughs> it was so funny. I said, well, you could finish at the University of Northern Iowa. So what is that? <laughs> no, no state school was going to compare to where I was going to school as far as I was concerned. So when, um, when I graduated, I think I had two weeks. I came back to Chicago and then I went for a week and then I went to Iowa to look around and I went to work. You have some role models. Who who are they? Vernon Jarrett, because he wrote for the Defender. He wrote for the Sun-Times. And I can remember the first time that I, I met Vernon. I could I could hardly talk. It was at a National Association of Black Journalists meeting. And I'm sitting there listening to his speech. And I'm wondering, how can I talk to him? And I'd never been to a NABJ uh, conference before. And at, after speech, I saw these people walking up, talking. I said, oh, I can do it. But then I get there and I shook his hand. And I could barely talk. I, you know, because he really, he, he he spoke truth to power and he he led us in, into his life. Uh, since when, like when his son got killed, that was probably uh, one of the most touching columns I've, I've ever read because, you know, he, Vernon was perceived as a tough guy. But then, you know, we saw his soft side. That was, that was powerful. Toughest interview you ever did. 
<laughs> the toughest interview I ever did was with a man in, in Michigan when I worked at the Oakland Press in Pontiac, Michigan. And just a way of background, this is right after, this was in the same county, maybe five miles at the most from where Jimmy Hoffa disappeared. And this was some years after his disappearance, maybe three years. I was a business reporter. And there was a guy named uh, Bill Buffalino Jr. Buffalino was the head of uh, one of the unions. I had a managing editor who was obsessed with the mafia. In fact, he had hired a reporter who now works for 60 Minutes. He hired a reporter whose beat was finding Jimmy Hoffman. So when he found out I was going to interview Buffalino because Buffalino's dad was reputedly uh, in the mafia. And so he says, you know, you ask Buffalino, what is the mafia? And I like, mm, I don't know. So I'm doing the interview and it's pleasant enough. He's, he's answering all my questions. And then I said, Mr. Buffalino, my boss told me I have to ask you, what is what is the mafia? And then his whole demeanor changed. And he said, I don't know what you're talking about. That mafia, what is that? And just then this guy comes and stands in the door and he fills the door. And he says, Buffalino says to him, this guy's from the Oakland Press. He asked me, what is the mafia? And the man just stood up to him and said, That's the interview's over. And so I'm, I'm leaving the building and Scott's walking behind me. And I just, uh, I just hope he's going to his car and I'm going to my car. So I get to my car and he comes over to the door and he says, the next time you come here, make sure you, you have tape on your hood. And I said, okay. And I left. And then I went back when I got back and I told my boss everything, the managing editor. He says, he said that? And I said, yeah. I said, but I don't know what he meant. And because he was so tuned into the mafia, he says, you put tape on your hood. And when you get back to your car, if the tape is broken, somebody's put a bomb under there. You know, come on. But this story, no. Fortunately, I never had to go back to that, that union hall. But that, that was the toughest one. So what are some of your strategies to help people feel comfortable talking honestly with you? Get them to talk about themselves before we talk about the story. Um, Mayor Daly was, was, was known for this. That, uh, he'd ask people, where'd you go to high school? And you'd tell him and he'd make some comment or something, but he knew whether you were a Chicagoan or not without asking you if you were a Chicagoan. So I might go in somebody's office and you know see pictures of their family and you know ask them how you know how long ago that was and then they'll talk about their kids or something. Or um, a lot of times people aren't comfortable talking to reporters, but they've agreed to do it. So they'll start out talking about something 
other than what the, uh, the topic is, and you listen. And and I think that's that is the key. You you let people talk about themselves. Uh, you don't um, you don't interrupt them, and you ask appropriate uh, follow up questions. A lot of times you'll hear on um, you'll see it on television. You hear it on the radio. A reporter has a list of questions, and the answer might be, well, that happened 33 years ago. And then the next question has nothing to do with that answer. So you, 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 know, you have to listen and um, show people that, that you're paying attention. And, and if you don't understand something, it's much, much better to say, I don't understand that, than to, to get back to the office, write the story and try to figure it out, and then be too embarrassed or too prideful to call that source and say, you know, I think you said this, but I'm not sure. Can you explain that further? Because I'm just not understanding. And people would much rather you take their time up asking for a clarification than them having to call you and telling you how stupid you are because you got you got that part wrong. How has the investigative or the focus on investigative reporting in the Chicago Reporter? changed investigative reporting in the rest of Chicago media? My theory is that investigative reporting has always been with us. It's just, um, it used to be called feature or long form reporting, but because that was the staple of the reporter, that's what we've, we've come to be known for. You know, you don't see you don't see weddings, you don't see crosswords, you don't see um, feel-good stories, or you don't see crime. When you break a good story, what's it feel like? That's very hard to describe because it depends on the story. It's, it's kind of like golf. You play 18 holes and you got one perfect shot. And you just, you know, you relive that shot. And you go out the next day because of the next time and you're trying to replicate that shot and you don't do it, but you get another great shot. And that's, that's, that's the way it is. I, I don't think it ever, it, de- it depends on so much, so much depends on the story. I mean, if you're taking somebody down often, uh, that's just on you know, top of the world. I can remember a story in, uh, in Pontiac, Michigan, where um, some council, this was what, in the seventies, Council people uh, wanted to bring boxing to the uh, to the Pontiac Silverdome, and boxing was real big in Mexico at that time. So they said we're taking a trip to to Mexico to try to talk to some promoters to come. Well, what they did was they did go to Mexico. They were all married, and they took girlfriends. And when that got reported, that was that was really good because it was something they shouldn't have done. Uh, but it wasn't a story. You could go and snoop around and see, you know, who you can't follow every trip that every council member makes. And then there was another one when um, they had they had city-issued credit cards. And I got a tip that uh, one of the council members was using it for personal items and then shoes and clothes for his wife and all that. And then that story 
you could you had I had to dig, you know, what are the other, and this was before Freedom of Information Act. That's the other thing about getting out in the street and recording. Because I had a lot of people at City Hall who knew me and who trusted me and they knew they could tell me things, and I wouldn't say Joe told me or Sally told me. So when I started checking on these uh these American Express cards, there were people who were happy to not just tell me, but say, you know, come back tomorrow, I'll I'll have the paperwork for you. But uh, you know, that was an instance where it felt good to to get these people, and there was an obligation to to dig and see if there's there's a better story. So all the stories together were great, but there wasn't that euphoric feeling. Any thoughts about how that can um lead to mistakes or bad judgment when it's almost as if they are trying to replicate going back to your golf analogy. That shot. Mm -hmm. You you just have to, um, you know, you you have to be in the moment. You got to make a determination. Is this something that um, is really worth it? And I, but I had a, um, a natural habit of, if you don't see me writing it, my notebook, you'll never see it in the paper. So that allowed that allowed people to talk to me freely. And uh, they were they were always surprised because they thought they were telling me something that was really titillating or revealing or whatever. And then I see them a couple of days later and say, hey, you didn't you didn't write anything about what I told you. I said, did you see me write anything in my notebook? And and I I, I lived by that. Uh, and that's how you build you know, sources and that's how you gain trust. And so people will tell me things back then. They told me things that they wanted me to know. And I mean, a couple I can remember they said, get your notebook out, get your notebook out. Because, <laughs> you know, they wanted to see this and I can't speak to their motivation. Maybe it was a bad boss or something or uh, some kind of messed up relationship. I didn't care about that. I wanted to. You know, I wanted the story and the subjects of the story could tell me. Well, Glenn, got any closing thoughts for us? One major closing thought is that people traditionally complain about media coverage. And I, I understand that because I've been outside of the business too. Uh, but then I see, I can, I can see why a, a reporter or an editor would allow something. But to me, if, instead of complaining about it, get in the business because you can make a change from the inside. You can stand outside the, the Tribune and you can throw all the rocks you want. Uh, you can throw bricks and the people inside are going to look down and say, whoa, they're throwing bricks. But that's not going to change anything that they do inside. So if you're inside and you can have a voice and you can speak to things matters for people working there might not have considered. Um, an example is that back in the 80s, I believe it was, I saw a list of uh, employee addresses from the Detroit Free Press. And 85% of those people lived in a community next door to Detroit, a very upscale community next to Detroit called Gross Point. So they go from Gross Point to downtown Detroit, lunch in downtown Detroit. 
home to Gross Point. So they knew very little about what was happening, if anything, you know, what was happening on the, um, the west side of Detroit. And, and you can't just uh, parachute in, as they call it. You can't parachute into a community and get a real sense of what's going on. You know what the people tell you. And sometimes when you do that, when, when you have no roots, no connection to that community, people will tell you things that deliberately that aren't true. And you can go back and you write that. And if there's nobody else in that newsroom uh, who knows any better. Bam, you got a great mistake and you got to do it correctly. But uh, that's, to me, that's, that's the major thing is to get into the business. And right now there's a paucity of uh, black male reporters. I, d I don't know why. And I've asked a lot of people. Um, I've talked to professors. I've talked to um, people with other papers and nobody has, has a real answer. I know that a lot of the guys who want to go into journalism want to go into broadcast and they want to go into sports. Well, that's, that's good, but you know, I need you uh, writing news. And maybe I can fix that one day. I don't know how yet. But I haven't given up. My closing thoughts. Our communities long for more and not fewer voices raising important questions and presenting potential solutions regarding the social issues that continue to plague us here in Chicago. The Chicago Reporter is still needed. My guest on this edition of Chicago Media Talks, recorded via Zoom and broadcast on YouTube October 3rd, 2022, has been Glenn Reedus, interim editor and publisher at the Chicago Reporter. You can reach him at gredus at chicagoreporter.com, and you can reach me at Sheila at rivet360.com. I'm Sheila Solomon. For producers Jesse Batin and Janine Harston and everyone at Rivet360, Thanks for listening to Chicago Media Talks.